0: Welcome to the IntraFish Podcast, where the IntraFish editorial team discusses some of the most timely and controversial news in the seafood sector. I'm Drew Cherry, editorial director of IntraFish, calling in from Bergen, Norway, and I'm joined by executive editor John Fiorillo and reporter Kim Tran. Hi, John. Hi, Kim. Hi. So today we're going to hit on a few hot topics. We'll be talking trade, salmon escapes, and genetic engineering. Uh, why don't we kick it off with the Seafood Import Monitoring Program. Kim, you've been covering this, uh, and the latest on it was a lawsuit that was uh, tossed out by a judge uh, brought by the National Fisheries Institute and several U.S. seafood companies trying to, to block the implementation of it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the program, why it's controversial?
1: Um. All right. So with this, it's most people are calling it the traceability rule, pretty much means that Companies who deal with a specific 13 species starting next year will have to comply to very strict traceability rules. and from the point of harvest, whether it's farmed or wild, it has to be traced all the way to when it hits the marketplace. So the lawsuit was that was filed by the NFI and a bunch of seafood companies, and these companies are big names. They're Trident, Pacific Seafood, Fortune Fish. These, these groups, they filed an objection to the rule and they were pretty much claiming that the new regulations would add $520 million in cost to this U.S. seafood sector. Um, they also said that it was passed too quickly uh, before President Trump took office and that was rushed and it wasn't done properly. But unfortunately for them, they were... Uh, they lost that lawsuit and now going forward uh, a lot of companies are trying to get ready for this. I've been talking to several companies in the sector and it does seem like it will be a, a bigger challenge for those who um, deal with wild fisheries, um, people who use tender boats who lump all their fish together and can't necessarily keep track of whose fish is was whose after it was all grouped together. Some companies are telling me that it's going to cost upwards of a quarter million of dollars to meet this level of traceability, even companies who have stringent traceability systems in place. It's a pretty costly burden to add this layer on just to meet all these requirements.
0: Okay, so do we see this as kind of a, another onerous level of regulations or, John, what's your take or is this,
2: is this needed? Um, it's hard to know if it's needed. I mean, I think it's a result of, you know, so much press um, on IUU fishing and governments trying to, you know, do something to address that. So in a way, it's it's just a result of, you know, a bigger bigger issue. I mean, there are a lot of traceability systems out there. The the problem, of course, is they're generally all third-party one-offs and they don't, uh, talk to each other. So everybody's using something different. So this is clearly and clearly an attempt to unify the process and, and the way things are done. Well, so
0: is it, I mean, where, what's the next step for it after this lawsuit is what I'm curious about, Kim. I mean, do you get any sense of, uh, as NFI kind of finished right now with, with challenging this or can anybody else challenge it or,
1: that I'm not quite sure, like what their next step is. Um, he did say in response to the lawsuit that they're going to um, thoroughly review the court's decision, which makes me feel like possibly they would uh, could appeal. Um, but the he also said that their members will comply with the law, and, and this goes into effect soon. It's January 1st when this goes into effect. Uh, and on the flip side of it, I've spoken to companies who are very much in favor of this um there's uh the Alaska uh, Bering Sea Crabber Association I spoke to them and they say that their their fishermen lost in about 25 percent of market value over the years totaling hundreds of millions of dollars because of unfair competition from crab from non-trustworthy origins and just um, U.S.-based fishermen are very much for this rule,
0: and, and it's the same also in uh, with the Gulf sh- uh, shrimp uh, fishers as well. Correct? I mean, yes. they, they also I think have come out and said in favor of this rule.
1: Yes, and and those in favor they say they acknowledge that it is going to be costly now, right now when we, this change is made, but they say in the long term it's better overall. It just makes for a much more level playing field in this in the U.S. marketplace.
2: Yeah, and there was one other point at the end of your story the other day, Kim, that I think it's Noah or whomever is overseeing this, but they were working on a, a program that expedites this process for companies that are, you know, show a pattern of regularly importing fully traceable stuff. So over time, it sounds like they're going to try and uh, make a, yeah. make some trusted uh, – I forgot what they called it, but some trusted importer program or something like that.
1: It's, a, it's called uh, the Commerce Trusted Trader Program, and they had a, a public comment period. NOAA had that earlier this year um, to design and implement this, but pretty much it means that anyone who applies for this program, um, I assume that they go through some sort of rigorous um, process to um, be part of it, but then once you are – you get um, it's it said that the benefits include reduced targeting and inspections, and also enhanced streamlined entry into the U.S. So I, I assume you know there'll be things like that assistance in that form. But um, I also hear from companies that this is you know they're not getting any financial support. This is a uh, an unfunded mandate, and they are struggling to. Uh, to meet the cost of having a new, different pa- paperwork system, everyone's required to enter their data into a specific system to trace everything.
0: Hmm. Well, I don't know if they'll hit that five hundred million dollar price tag, and uh, I don't know how they'll calculate it. But um, it sounds like this is going to be a, a onerous and costly process, no matter no matter how it goes. Yeah. So, John, let's move to your backyard. Uh, usually, my backyard. Uh, Cypress Island. Uh, Cook had a massive escape there. Uh, I think it's been two weeks now. Um, so, tell us a, a little bit about the fallout because it's been it's been huge. And let's uh, let's talk about uh, what this might mean for U.S. salmon farming.
2: Yeah, well, I think your column addressed uh, the fallout in the future pretty pretty, uh, well. I mean, we're in wild salmon country. We're in a part of the United States and a part of Western Canada that has, uh, you know, a difficult history with farm salmon, Um, a lot of protests against it, a lot of fear of it. For years and years and years, decades, it goes back. So – this happening <laughs> in the magnitude that it did, um, you know, definitely didn't help things. And it may have really, really hurt things in the sense that um, Cook uh, and anybody else that would ever come in here, if they ever would, on the off the coast of Washington, uh, is going to have a very difficult time uh, expanding in any way or, you know, Anything like that? Now all the permits are on hold, and when I say all, those are for Cook, because they're the only ones in Washington State right now with farms, which they purchased as part of their deal with icicle a year ago. So yeah, so I think it's going to be very tough, and you're seeing the fallout up north, off BC. Um, you know, these groups are seizing on it, and you know, I-, I have to say, it's a PR disaster. It is not an environmental disaster. Uh, that I mean to to read some of the stuff you know you'd think these fish were uh, I don't know you think they were just eating wild salmon and (laughs) it it is pretty bizarre but if you look at all the documented science so far there's no evidence that they breed with pacific salmon or colonize rivers uh, that are you know important to pacific species to uh, you know repopulate so you know, I guess yeah. we'll see, but it, it doesn't look good.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think what, what
2: struck me,
0: and I don't know if it was just one of those things where um, uh, it just landed at a particular time when people were paying attention. I, I don't know. But we haven't seen a story about farm salmon spread uh, in this way, I think, in years and years and years. Um, I have been really surprised how far uh, it's been picked up on websites across the United States, uh, up into Canada. Um, And and I think, at least it seems to me, that a lot of people, a lot of friends uh, texting and and emailing me, it seemed like so many of them had no clue that there were salmon farms uh, in Washington State. And, you know, I couldn't – I was sort of wrestling with the the thought. I mean, is it – is that is it bad or is it good that Icicle and Cook have kind of operated under the radar a bit there in in Puget Sound and what is the what is the takeaway what's the lesson should should companies be more uh, transparent um, I mean it just it the sense I got was that the shock of not even knowing there was farm salmon in people's backyard part of why this story kind of grabs so many headlines. You know, in
2: this day and age, in this world of business, it's hard to argue against transparency. I mean, transparency is a big deal in business these days. And, you know, I don't lay a lot of this at cook's feet right right now in the sense that, you know, if you – I mean, I school – own these farms for quite a while these this particular farm had been operating for 30 years although not that whole time in icicles hands but um and it may have been i i think you're you're right it may have there may have been a time in the not too distant past when you could have touted these farms or at least exposed them for the good that they do i mean farm salmon is there's nothing wrong with farm salmon you know but on the other hand um you know then you draw the attention of you know the the groups who will never change their mind on it and can easily mobilize with placards and bullhorns and etc so it's it's a it's a difficult situation but you know cook has only had these for better part of a year and they were sinking money into these that particular farm was in the permitting process to be repositioned and redone, so to speak, um, because where it does sit now, people who know that area and who know that farm tell me that those currents and tides are really kind of unique and volatile there. So there, there is, there is truth to the fact that the tides there played a big role in this, obviously. Now, You know, first they tried to connect it with the eclipse and that kind of fell
0: through.
2: Yeah, but but who knows? I mean, how how do we truly know? But but nevertheless, there's a history of uh, you know current and tidal challenges where that farm is and has been for a while. So Cook was sinking money into it. They were going to replace it with a high pressure. Plastic cages. I think they're. I'm not sure what the terminology is, but they're the ones used now. They're the most modern, as opposed to aluminum, um, which that one was. So they were doing the right thing, um, but you know, nature, nature got them. I guess is the way I look at it.
0: Uh, well, I mean, I I agree that uh, you know that that there was uh, maybe not as much investment. That said, book owns them, so you you break. What's the saying? You broke it, you bought it. Except in this case, you own it and you broke it and you own it. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Cook's know really the one know. that's got to take responsibility for it ultimately. But I no, think like a larger question know. is, you know, what? so what can be done? Because, you know, a, a PR, it's always reactionary with the salmon farming industry. It's always on the back foot, I, I sense. And I think Cook's done a good job of communicating after the fact and being open about what's happened to pretty much everybody that's tried to reach. Uh, it seems like they've been willing to give comment. But, you know, up in BC, they've done some interesting programs with bringing, uh, opening up the farms and doing these farm tours, uh, trying to bring members of the community uh, to the farms. And I don't know, maybe that's just naive and and walking into a buzzsaw to try to bring people onto these farms, bring uh, school kids and things like that to see what's happening um, I don't know. I mean, is there a way that you can get in front of the communication of farm salmon and, and build have better community relations? I know they're working on it and have been working on it for years in B.C., but is there anything else you think that salmon farmers can do ahead of when these accidents happen? I mean, uh,
2: I it's very difficult. I mean, I think um, educating the public, especially the public that is in proximity to these farms is critical and should be an ongoing thing. But, you know, we got to realize right now, Cook is in a different type of PR. They're in crisis PR, and that's a whole nother ball ballgame. And uh, when it impact, as it impacts Washington's farms, the PR going forward is uh, going to continue to be kind of crisis mode because now they have to rebuild relationships. And I don't know what their relationships are with the local government. Um, in Washington State but you know that's probably an area where they need to start educating legislators and and those types of people who have control over permitting and stuff but yeah I I really don't know I mean there is a large vocal well I don't know if it's even large a vocal (laughs) opposition to salmon farming that has been around for decades and I don't think it's as strong as it used to be, but something like this kind of reignites it, and um, it's tough. And it's to a deal. shame.
0: Yeah, it's it is a shame wrong. because it's, I, it's think that, completely wrong, I think that I think things are moving in the right direction in Washington State and in Maine. You know, that people's perceptions of farm salmon is changing. So, you know, I, I, you know, I pose the question: uh, you know, d- is this the death knell for any expansion of of salmon. A lot of politicians are making hay about this. I don't know how far this has set any kind of expansion of salmon farming in America back. In-
2: I, I really don't. I think, you know, there's Maine is expanding or has been quietly expanding. Um, and Washington State, those are the only two areas where there's salmon farming here. And Washington State was, you know, it looked like under Cook, it was going to kind of slowly expand a little bit i mean there were there were signs but i think it's completely halted out here out west and i don't know what that does for maine
0: well it'll be interesting to follow i mean i i think that cook may find there's an opportunity in here to to brand and promote their presence in washington state and maybe build some uh support for it um and let's hope that's the way it goes yeah uh, okay, let's move on to maybe our most controversial topic. Um, and John, you reached uh, got some blowback for a column that, that you did on it, and some and some kudos. Um, but like any good column, it was it was uh, provocative. Um, but it was the first commercial sale of Aqua Bounty uh, GM salmon into Canada. Your thoughts uh, on this sale? Uh, you, you reached out to them, and they. Um, declined to tell you who who had bought the the fish and declined to tell you where it was going, to your thinking that was, um, in in your words, cowardly, that they they should have uh, both come forward and said they're going to be selling this.
2: Well, I I think the behavior is cowardly, and... We have to we have to go back a little bit here. They they have been working on this project for 20 years plus. They've done a great job of documenting the science of its safety, its uh, you know quality. It's uh, it's not a threat to the environment. I mean, if you look at all the research that they had to produce, I don't know, it's probably six feet tall worth of documents. I have no idea. So they spent 20 years doing this, millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars. They don't really have any money right now. And they continued throughout that time to, you know, be steadfast in the assertion that the fish is safe, it's delicious. I have no reason to doubt that. I have nothing against GM salmon. But the critical moment comes 20 years down the road where they have their first, albeit tiny, little batch of salmon. And they just kind of slip it through the market. I I don't get it. I really don't. And I think I know why they did it. I mean, I've talked to people there. I mean, they were afraid of the very thing that Cook is dealing with. The the groups that come out and they'll boycott, you know, say it went through, say any grocery store, they'd probably show up there with their, with their campaigns and all that. And they probably didn't want to extend that torture onto their customers. I totally get it. I totally get it. But on the other hand, I don't get it. I'm just like, if this product is safe, if it's good, you're allowed to sell it in Canada unlabeled. Why, why didn't you say, so? why didn't you, you know, um, support this and, and tell I mean, people. And, and at some
0: point they're going to have to. And I, I think, and I totally agree with you. And I think Bonnie has, has done a good job and probably cook should look to Aquaboni in terms of how to be, uh, you know, how to, how to handle some of these uh, crisis situations. Cause aquaboni has been doing it for years and years. Uh, you know, and, and if if they're going to, to get it out into the market, at some point they're going to have to let people know. And I think the mistake, again, I totally see their logic behind it too, but I think the mistake is they've been extremely transparent uh, all the way. And then it gives a perception that they suddenly don't want to be transparent, that maybe this is going to be snuck into the food chain uh, somehow. And, you know, I, I don't think that is going to be the right way to, um, to move the product forward. Because I think also, if GM Salmon, yes, it's got a, a possibility to be a, a major money saver for uh, salmon farming companies. And I think eventually people will come around to it. Uh, but at the same time, it should be and has to be something that is uh, talked about. And if we are going to change the public's perception of DM, there there really needs to be a way to uh, market it uh, as market it for its for its benefits. And I think you can sometimes you can take opposition that's not that's based on not really sound science, and you can take that head on and and turn it around to kind of a branding opportunity. And maybe that's the way Aqua Bounty should be looking at its. Next commercial commercial batch, which will be coming soon now that they've uh, established a, a grow-out facility in the, in the states.
2: Yeah, it, it may or it may not. I mean, this is the this is the the cook dilemma as well. I mean, it may trigger, and that was one of my points. It may trigger that the labeling uh, pass that they got in Canada gets changed, and maybe they have to do in Canada what they have to. What ultimately have to do here in the U.S. is label it. I mean, they can't sell it unlabeled in the U.S. right now. We're waiting for labeling rules to emerge from the government. So, you know, and and the, the other point to me is there's two other points. Um, you know, say it went to a restaurant, just XYZ restaurant. The guy who bought that or the gal who bought that for dinner, maybe they want nothing to do with GM products. And maybe they have no idea that their spices are GM and whatever, okay? I, I understand that. But they, in this particular case, they were never given the information to make that choice. So that just bothers me, and that goes to the transparency thing that I think we, we've been talking about quite a bit here. The second point is now they're, for, they're going – if this continues and they don't you know, speak up about – what their where their product is and all that and brand it and all that they're forcing regular traditional salmon farm salmon producers now to start marketing their salmon or identifying their salmon as non-gmo so they're pushing their problem so to speak or their reluctance to you know identify their product they're pushing it back on the broader farm salmon industry and i talked to uh, at least one producer in Chile, a significant producer, who's had to do that, uh, not directly in reaction to um, uh, what Aquabound did, but that fueled it in part. So their product now, at least at the wholesale level, is being identified as non-GMO, and I think you're going to start seeing more of that at the retail level.
0: Yeah, well, and that's going to be, I think, where the rubber hits the road, is uh, when it's labeled, uh, will consumers buy it? Um, uh, and in, in where will they buy it? Will it be more in retail? Will it be more in food service? And um, how do producers that are are using uh that broodstock? How do they how do they market that? Um, yeah,
1: there's
2: nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, I, I well, from everything I know, it's perfectly fine, and I I have no problem with it being in in the you know, in the supply chain, but just label it, just tell people what it is. They'll decide for themselves and, you know, we'll move on.
0: We'll leave it there. Thanks, John. Thanks, Kim. That's it for this edition of the Intrafish podcast. Make sure that you follow all our coverage on intrafish.com, And remember you can find us on all social media platforms or even better, sign up for one of our many free newsletters to keep up to speed thanks john thanks kim thanks sure thing thanks and goodbye